This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of July 30th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. Welcome to our show. I'm Greentech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey in our nation's capital. Also in Washington, my co-host Catherine Hamilton. She's our resident clean tech policy guru. Catherine, anything exciting happening over there at 38 North? Um, it's always exciting at 38 North, but today I'm actually uh, podcasting from home after making sure that my kids were safely in camp. One of my kids is actually obsessed with the energy gang and has his own microphone and pretends that he's Steven and Jigger at different times. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, he loves it. Maybe, so I had to get him to camp first. <laughs> well, maybe we should uh, set up a live podcast, all three of us in your home. <laughs> he would get autographs. He would just totally love it. Our other co-host, Jigger Shah, is in Aspen this week for the Aspen Action Forum. Jigger is a solar entrepreneur and partner with Clean Feet Investors. That's Clean Feet, not Clean Fleet, as I called it last week. You'd think I'd be able to get my co-host company right. What's up there in Aspen, Jigger? Well, they've uh, put together about 300 of us um, that are former Aspen fellows to get us to you know, commit to doing something big this year and 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 getting the help of our fellow fellows to to get it done. So it's an interesting concept. Like what what kind of big things are you talking about? Well, like one guy um, from uh, South Carolina pledged to remove four dams in two states that basically historically has you know really been a symbol of racism down there. Um, and he's gotten you know fifty other fellows to help him with political contacts, etc. And now they look like they're eight or nine months away from actually accomplishing this goal. Hmm. So you're talking about tangible stuff. I always find that like some of those real high-level meetings are a lot of whiteboarding and not a ton of action. Like, Are you feeling that there's some real action coming out of a meeting like this? Well, there's certainly both, um, some whiteboarding and some real action. But, I mean, this guy's particular project is really you know, impactful. My pledge is you know, to support um, specifically 100,000 people in the United States who want to sell a million dollars worth of climate change solutions in their community um, with training and with, you know, education and all that stuff, as you guys have heard me talk about before. So cool. Well, this week we are talking costs, the hidden costs of wind and solar, the cost of the export import bank and the cost of new tariffs on Chinese solar products. In our first segment, we will look at a study from the Brookings Institution, concluding that the true cost of wind and solar are far higher than assumed. In our second segment, we'll dissect the debate here in Washington about the Export-Import Bank. In our third segment, we will assess the impact of new tariffs imposed on Chinese solar products coming into the U.S. And at the end of the program, we will tell you something you may not know. First up, how do we calculate the true cost of intermittent renewables? The levelized cost of wind and solar are falling by the day. But how cheap are they really? A recent study from the Brookings Institution concludes that they are far higher than presumed when using a cost-benefit calculation. Rather than simply look at the net present value of capital and operating costs for a technology, 
The study examined grid balancing costs, the cost of CO2 emissions, capacity factors, and avoided fuel costs. The conclusion, nuclear and gas are the most cost-competitive technologies for reducing carbon emissions, while wind and solar are the least competitive. For example, assuming a $50 a ton carbon tax, the author estimates that nuclear avoids $400,000 worth of carbon emissions per megawatt, compared with around $69,500 for solar and $107,000 for wind. So what are the implications here? And more importantly, did Brookings get it right? After all, there are plenty of other conflicting reports, including one recent one from the International Energy Agency, which found that most grids around the world can easily handle up to 10% variable generation from wind and solar with virtually no added cost. Getting beyond that, however, will require some more sophisticated and costly integration methods. So who's right here, and how do we appropriately model this stuff? Um, Jigger, I think I'll let you take the first whack at this one. Any specific reactions to the Brookings report? It came out uh, actually a couple months ago, but The Economist picked it up, and now everyone's really talking about it again. Uh, what was your reaction to that coverage and the report itself? So when you think about Brookings, Brookings is a collection of experts. It's not actually one unified uh, organization that has even quality. And so in this particular case, I mean, this guy basically is just a, a visiting fellow, Charles Frank. He's, you know, um, grown up in the 20th century uh, you know, electricity grid and can't really figure out how to integrate renewables. But I think when you think about the way the study is done, it's basically saying how do you replace a 24 by 7 generator with a 24 by 7 equivalent with wind and solar when that's not how generation planning is done. We have a number of generators, a number of transmission distribution constraints. And when you look at a place like California, when we have this duck curve analysis, you have specific issues you have to solve with specific types of generation. And he's basically trying to mix everything together, um, adding storage to solar. So I think his analysis is actually quite good for a microgrid in the middle of nowhere. But then we're not comparing ourselves to natural gas and nuclear. We're comparing ourselves to diesel. Yeah, I, he, he takes each thing in a vacuum. So each resource is looked at in a total vacuum rather than the way, as Jigger says, the grid actually operates, which is managed which is able to use energy efficiency, demand response, smart grid technology, storage, all of these other abilities that are certainly going to become more and more relevant as we move forward with the, with modernizing the grid. And it just it completely changes the game. This is not, you know, power plant by power plant that we need to look at this. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And like this is such a complicated exercise and there are so many different assumptions you can make about say integration costs themselves like what the grid mix would look like with and without variable wind and solar, for example. So, you know, modeling with those technologies is much easier as you can just take existing data and that can be used in advanced models to, you know, fact, to, to look at what increased penetration would, would do on the grid. But integration analysis is difficult because you need to model the mix without those resources, too. And any change in the mix changes the fuel costs, like the ramping requirements. Um, it changes the theoretical integration cost of wind and solar. And there is this great report from, the re from researchers at NREL, and they conclude that um, integration costs uh, might not even be possible to calculate uh, or rigorously define because of all these factors. 
that's really important because that brings us to this broader issue in modeling. And this study basically assumes that wind and solar need 100% fossil fuel backup when not producing electricity. And that is one way to model it, of course. But if you say add uh, efficiency, volt var support, demand response in here, you're looking at supporting costs that are far lower than if you used all fossil generation backup. So completely agree with both of you on the modeling assumptions here. Well, the bigger think that challenge, the- sorry, the bigger challenge that I have is what business a publication like The Economist has in basically putting forward such a ridiculous analysis. You know, why is it that The Economist believes that just, you know, this entire media movement in the last 10 years is let's just throw the most radical, most fire-breathing analysis into our magazine and then let's see where the chips fall as opposed to actually having a thoughtful piece like Bloomberg Business Week has done or other folks have done. Well, I would disagree with that because I think it's fairly consistent with what The Economist has advocated, and that's some sort of flat carbon tax and uh, a flat subsidy environment where you're not creating more lucrative subsidies for, say, wind and solar. And I think their ultimate conclusion was not that these technologies are bad, but that we need to change the incentive environment um, to create some sort of flat, flat carbon tax or incentives that are fair to a lot of different technologies. So I wouldn't call it as radical as you think it is. Um, I think it's pretty consistent with what they've always advocated. I think the underlying assumptions in the report are just, some of them are, are just made very in a very sweeping way and they're not backed up with anything. So they say solar and wind have low capacity factors and low reliability. And I would like for them to then compare, I mean, natural gas capacity factors aren't very high either. They're under 50% for the most um, you know efficient combined cycle plants. And, you know, to say that wind and solar are less reliable is really ignoring the fact that the way we deploy these technologies on the grid is much more sophisticated. It's not all or nothing. It's done in a much more staged way. And I don't think that any of that's taken into account. I mean, the subtext here says wind and solar are even more expensive than is commonly thought. So you're suggesting, Stephen, that their readers at The Economist thought that wind and solar were super cheap and The Economist had to actually fix their misperception that wind and solar were cheap. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that wind and solar are commonly thought to be very expensive technologies. Most people are uneducated about where the cost curves are in wind and solar. It's only our listeners who actually know that wind and solar have gotten really uh, cheap. Most of the, the world is actually spreading lies about where our cost curves are. And so I think for the economists to say that oh, then it's more expensive than commonly thought. It's absolutely an agenda they shouldn't be pushing. Yeah, but I wouldn't call this a lie at all. I mean, a lot of journalism takes research like this at face value. And unfortunately, The Economist did as well. I wouldn't say that The Economist here is attempting to create a false narrative. They simply took one study at face value without considering all the other complicated factors that's a broader problem in journalism, not necessarily with just The Economist. Right. But I mean, if you read the article, the last paragraph basically talks about how, you know, the wind and solar are very expensive ways to reduce carbon dioxide where nuclear would be, you know, cheaper. Those nuclear plants weren't mothballed because people thought that CO2 was a bad, um, you know, thing to be avoiding. They were mothballed because of Fukushima. This piece is absolutely one-sided. I mean, I don't think this is journalism in any way. This is absolutely written so that people like us would talk about it on our podcast. Yeah, but they admit in this story 
that nuclear power plants are 75% more expensive to build and to operate per megawatt than a solar power plant. So in there, they're actually saying that solar is cheaper than nuclear when considering insurance costs and nuclear waste costs. Yeah, but that's not the conclusion that they draw at the end of the article either. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. I think what this brings us to is the recognition that we can't look at any of this stuff in a vacuum. And this is such an extraordinary, complicated exercise with so many different assumptions that go in there. And so this study, for example, doesn't factor in you know, all the other considerations for supporting one particular resource over another. And to be fair, that would make things even more complicated from a grid modeling or economic modeling perspective. But it's important to note all the other reasons why there might be value in renewables over nukes and gas, like, you know, different types of ancillary services, uh, the risk and disposal costs of nuclear, local air pollution. Um, I remember this study from 2004 that looked at how the 2003 Northeast blackout cascaded, and it showed that a few hundred megawatts of solar at key distressed areas to handle these extra power transfers might have actually prevented much of the blackout. Um, You know, it also fails to mention methane pollution from natural gas drilling. You could go deeper and deeper and deeper and look at um, the amount of fossil generation used to manufacture solar panels and wind turbines. It's endless. And so you could go on and on with this stuff and keep adding assumptions that change the value of each technology. I just think that we need to be aware of all those variables before definitively stating what the true costs of each technology are. Because you can can do it in a number of different ways. Right, but Stephen, I, I think the part that I'm asking you about is this is a respected publication like The Economist. I actually got a number of tweets as well as direct emails from colleagues of mine saying, hey, Jigger, is this true? These are people I've worked with for 10 years, and so they should have known that it wasn't true. And, you know, I'm just trying to understand as, you know, as a movement, when you've got 144,000 people in the solar industry and more in the broader clean energy industry in the U.S., you know, what should we be doing to make sure that these kind of hatchet jobs don't get published in the future. Yeah, I worry most that policymakers will take this and, you know, look at Brookings like, hey, you know, this isn't the Heritage Foundation. This is Brookings. And look what they're saying. And they're going to use this to create policy that's really based on poor underlying assumptions. Those are precisely the people that wave this crap in my face when I meet with them. And then I have to spend the one hour that I had planned with them and had had planned out my whole presentation, that half an hour of it's taken up by me, like, you know, figuring out how to actually respond to a hatchet job piece. I mean, I think that you have a lot of underlying assumptions when it comes to the integration costs and what technologies we can use as backup. And that makes wind and solar look a hell of a lot better. And someone else has a completely different set of assumptions. And my point is, you can plug a lot of these in, and some of them are equally good assumptions but completely different and come up with a completely different conclusion. And I think it's important to point out that you have one set of assumptions that favors those technologies and someone else might have a completely different set. I just think that that's important to note here and your bias influences your perception that this is a complete piece of crap report. And I think that the report is fair enough given the limited set of assumptions they have in there. I do agree with you that I think that the Economist should have done its reporting much better and that there, there is potential influence on how people think about this stuff. 
but I don't think it's a completely wrong report in in how it came to its conclusions. It's just a limited set of assumptions, and uh, you could come up with a totally different conclusion based on another set. That's ridiculous. What if I what what if I showed you a report that used a completely different set of assumptions and limited set of whatever and all the words that you used and it showed that we had global cooling over the last like 12 years <laughs> which a lot of people actually do right you google it people are like well actually in real terms the atmosphere hasn't heated up since like you know 2002 you would call that poppycock well i'm calling this guy poppycock because <laughs> his stuff is com- wrong. Now look, there are a lot of people, I agree with you that I'm biased, and there are a lot of people who are not biased who actually put together good stuff, and, and I actually do have to defend you know, wind and solar policy against that really good stuff. But I shouldn't have to defend really crappy stuff that's a hatchet job done by some visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution that Brookings itself is not backing because Brookings is just a collection of experts, and The Economist just goes off and prints something on I mean, I guess my point was you could go so deep on some of these assumptions if you're actually comparing the cost to reduce CO2 emissions. So, for example, they didn't calculate the amount of CO2 emissions needed to manufacture these products, either the equipment that goes into a natural gas plant or the equipment that goes into developing a solar or wind project, uh, the water that's used for solar, the recycling techniques. Like, no, no, when you, you look at recycling, deep. I mean, you could go so deep on this. And this and is, we, I and guess that was my point that. about set of assumptions in that if you're looking at the cost to reduce CO2 emissions, I'm willing to accept that if you have a certain set of assumptions and they look better or worse, and I don't disagree with you that this study was poor and that it had such a limited set of assumptions, but you know, my feeling is that it's somewhere in the middle, right? And that wind and solar are more costly than advocates say, but they're certainly not as costly as what this guy oh, concludes. I, look, I agree with you. I mean, I'm clearly biased, and you're right. I mean, in towards looking at that um, a certain way. My point is simply, I think this article is really more about the 50,000 foot. I don't care that Brookings came out with something bad. They do stuff that's stupid all the time. I care the economist covered it, yeah. right? That's what I care about. I care about the fact that my Twitter feed blew up, and I had a whole bunch of people email me saying, what do you think about this Economist article? Because that means there are people that I believe are influential or actually being influenced by that Economist article. And, you know, that's not necessarily something that is a good thing for us. Catherine, any final thoughts on this? Yeah, I would just say that when you take a study like this that is supposed to be looking nationally, it really it really does make it harder, as Jigger says, when you're working on the local and regional level to try to make an argument when you really have to look at a whole different set of factors and different sets of resources and the ability to manage those resources. And, and when people there are throwing this report in your face and saying, hey, this is what this guy says – you know, it's not helpful because you, then you have to come back and, and really build your entire case from scratch. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, eGauge Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device, eGauge provides real-time access to second-by-second data presented on a user-friendly interface. E-Gauge is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. 
Applications for the e-gauge meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net zero buildings. Uh, And those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the e-gauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGage. To learn more, go to www.egage.net. All right, let's move on to our second topic. The biggest fight in Washington this summer is over an issue that most Americans know little or nothing about, the Export-Import Bank. The Exim Bank, as it's called, provides loans and insurance for U.S. companies doing business in overseas markets. The goal of the bank is to stimulate demand for American-made technologies, thus boosting tax revenue as those companies grow, and, hopefully, design and make new products domestically to ship elsewhere. The bank's lending authorization will close at the end of September. Some conservatives see the bank as a way for well-connected companies to get more subsidies, and they want to see it abolished completely. Many Democrats and moderate conservatives want to keep it open and are working on ways to fund the bank with some changes to lending authority. So what does this have to do with clean energy? In 2008, Congress mandated that 10% of Exim's lending needed to focus on renewable energy or environmentally beneficial projects. Currently, renewables only make up about 2% of lending activity. Then, late last year, the bank said it would stop financing coal projects overseas unless they included carbon capture and storage. Although the bank's investment in oil and gas companies still dwarfs renewables, environmentalists cheered the shift away from carbon-intensive coal as a win for the climate. But coal supporters were certainly not happy, and coal state Democrats like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin have proposed reauthorizing the bank, but also requiring it to get back into coal. So if Exim is not authorized, and it's truly too early to say what Congress will do, how much of an impact will it have on America's international push to support clean energy? Catherine, give us a sense for how this fight is shaping up politically, and are you hearing anything specific from companies about the consequences? Okay, thanks. First, I need to correct uh, a misconception you have, Stephen. This is not the biggest fight in D.C. right now. The biggest fight is over whether the House of Representatives should sue President Obama. Um, so <laughs> just, to, just to make it quite clear, that is where we are right now. But um, you're right. This is um, it's, it's interesting because the bank has come under fire um, like every single time it has to be reauthorized. If you go back into the press stories in the 80, early 80s, early 90s, every single time there's a fight over whether or not we should reauthorize the Exim Bank. And politically, it's interesting because, yes, um, Joe Manchin from West Virginia wants this coal provision in. He's gotten a few Republicans on his side, um, Kirk from Illinois, Graham from South Carolina, Blunt from Missouri, and Joe Hans from Nebraska. So those folks are all kind of on board with, you know, refunding uh, some of the coal projects. Um, but then there are others like Mark Warner, who's a really pro-business Democrat from Virginia, and Mary Landrieu, of course, who's locked in a pretty hot and heavy, um, uh, you know, election bid back in Louisiana, um, they're really using this um, on the stump in a way that it hasn't been used before um, to to really tout U.S. jobs and manufacturing and, and um, you know, using XM as one of their talking points. Now, that said, so it does fund a lot of large companies, um, but what it, it also it supports a lot of smaller and middle-sized companies as well. Um, 
you know, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, they are all very supportive of, of XM Bank. What it does, though, and, you know, Jigger will know this also based on the companies he works with, is it really does help buy down the cost of doing business overseas and tries to levelize the playing field, level the playing field a little bit um, because other countries, of course, provide all kinds of other, you know, subsidies to their industries. And so it tries to make it easier for the U.S. to sell overseas. Um, And it's not a huge amount of funding and they returned a billion dollars to the treasury last year. So it strikes me that 10% for renewables is not a huge amount you know, to begin with, that they're they're very cost effective in the way they operate. And it really does help businesses. I have worked with companies that are selling storage, that are selling wind products, that it's really, really helped. And I know I've I've talked to them personally about trying to fund some projects in countries that are considered higher risk. And to have the XM Bank involved in that conversation to help buy down the risk is really, really helpful. Yeah, since 2001, XM has provided around 14 around 15 billion in support for oil and gas projects and like 1.7 billion for renewable energy and environmental projects. So it actually seems like it might be a worse deal for the fossil fuel guys. Jigger, what are you hearing? Any companies that you're talking with that rely on XM Bank or are looking to XM Bank? Well, the whole solar industry does, right? I mean, when you think about every US solar company from First Solar to Sun Power to Sun Edison to others that does projects overseas, uses low-cost money from either OPEC or Exim to finance their projects overseas. I mean, one of the reasons why India had the trade case against the U.S. is that First Solar was grabbing enormous market share in India using Export-Import Bank financing at 3% interest, um, which was much more cost-effective than getting money from banks locally in India. Look, I, I think the Export-Import Bank is absolutely something that helps U.S. manufacturers. Um, the real reason we're in this mess is because the main user of the Export-Import Bank is Boeing. They use you know, way more than every other corporation combined in terms of the money um, and support, which is, is how we compete with Airbus in selling more planes. Um, and this is really an anti-Boeing stance. This has nothing to do with coal and clean energy. This is the Tea Party guys who are actually anti-corporate mm-hmm. as well as being anti-government. Um, and they th- and I think the way to solve that is not to kill the export import bank, but just to limit everyone you know, limit companies to pick a big number twenty billion dollars worth of total financing out of the the Exim Bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's companies like Boeing, GE, ConocoPhillips, Dow Chemical. They're all big beneficiaries, and you know companies that conservatives argue could easily find financing, or not necessarily easily, but could find financing without taxpayer support. And as we've been arguing, on the other hand, there are all these smaller renewable energy companies that just may not have the same level of sophistication and access to capital. So just like we saw argued for the domestic stimulus loan guarantee program, XM gives them this very tangible and needed boost to develop new projects in overseas markets. They have a great um, on their on the XM Bank website. They have success stories listed, and they have it. They have in every single state at least one success story, and most of those are for small businesses. And I, you know, I'm sure that that's done on purpose. But it's pretty interesting because there really is a footprint in every single state in the country that's helping U.S. companies. And then just to give a shout out, um, there's a guy at the Export Import Bank named Craig O'Connor um, who has been working tirelessly since the late '90s to get 
clean energy companies to use Export Import Bank. And if it wasn't for him, nobody would be using um, Export Import Bank for clean energy. Yeah, he's terrific. And he's so willing to sit down and talk to people about, you know, here are all the different mechanisms you can use. Um, you know, it may not be here. It may be OPIC. It may be somewhere else. But uh, he's he, you're right. He's been absolutely terrific. Yeah, and I think that there's this final big issue of international competitiveness that we need to consider. So do we want other countries to use our technologies and our expertise for developing renewable energy and environmental projects? Uh, yes, I'd say most people would argue yes. And if so, there's a really compelling case for XM's work. So my prediction is they'll actually figure this out and find a compromise and get it done. But it's, it, the Eric Cantor thing didn't, it didn't help here. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, I think it will too. Um, hopefully, it'll get done before they they lose their authorization in September. But um, yeah, I think it'll get done quietly without a lot of fanfare. Um, and then some of the folks who love it uh, will be able to use it in their election process. But I think it's going to be done very, very quietly. Let's turn to another international fight now. Last Friday, the Commerce Department ruled in favor of Solar World in an anti-dumping case and issued preliminary tariffs against Chinese solar manufacturers shipping product into the U.S. The tariffs are steep, coming in at around 47% for most producers, which could raise the price of Chinese modules by up to 20%. The tariffs are effective immediately and will undoubtedly raise the price of solar projects in the U.S. and possibly derail some. Non-Chinese manufacturers, on the other hand, are likely to see a boost in sales as developers buy more of their products in response. So the tariffs are preliminary. The Commerce Department will issue a final ruling in December. That leaves about five months for possible negotiations. And while most in the solar industry are interested in that outcome, there aren't any big signs that Solar World or the White House are moving in that direction. So are we stuck with these tariffs? Jigger, as uh, president of Case and someone who's been very vocal about this issue, I'd like you to react to the to the news. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, we're stuck with these. The Department of Commerce process is a very one-sided process. And the people who bring these cases forward generally always win. And that's what you saw here. Um, I think the fact of the matter is, is that First Solar has seen a huge boom. Um, everyone, you know, that I know of that's building projects in 2014 are really using First Solar modules to try to get that done. Um, and that wasn't who they had chosen earlier this year, but they were sort of forced to move that way. Um, what, what I found amazing about this is that they is that the Department of Commerce uh, roped in Taiwan here in this case and put anti-dumping tariffs on um, Gintech and Motec, which there's no evidence that I know of that those guys got subsidies from the Taiwanese government or any other place. Um, and for them to have been slapped with these tariffs just shows how completely ridiculous our process is for calculating these things. Um, yes, but doesn't Sia Sia has John Smirno, who was the, an advisor to the chairman of the um, International Trade Commission, who's pretty plugged in here. And my understanding is that there is a window of opportunity for a negotiated settlement, and they're working really hard to try to make that happen. Um, I think that Department of Commerce doesn't make have to make a decision until August 18th, so it strikes me that there is a bit of time here to try to to try to move them. Uh, how do you feel that might play out, Jigger? Well, so the so SIA has done an amazing job of getting everyone on the board, including First Solar, who I think was you know abstained since they're benefiting so much from this tariff, um, to agree to a set of principles by which 
the negotiations will occur, and they've also gotten the Chinese Manufacturing Association to agree to those principles, and those have been shared with um, the Department of Commerce and others within the White House. But the challenge is, is that Solar World still even now has not come up with their list of demands. There is no negotiation whatsoever happening with Solar World. There's a whole bunch of back-channel conversations happening with Solar World, but they're sort of saying, uh, we don't actually want to be part of a resolution. Two or three weeks ago, the, um, the White House actually reached out to uh, Solar World and basically said, look, you guys really need to give us what your list of demands are. We really want to figure out how to take care of this. And Solar World sort of shrugged their shoulders. So we'll see if they actually respond. So the WTO found also that the U.S. violated global trade rules when it imposed the initial tariffs in 2012. Uh, give us some context there. What does that mean exactly? Would it actually have any material impacts on current or upcoming tariffs? So it could have an impact if the U.S. decided not to fight it and agreed that it was, it was you know, wrong and then used the measures within WTO to fix it. That would still take 12 months if the U.S. did that. But you can imagine the U.S. is not going to establish that precedent with, oh, we'll comply with the WTO. So now there's two years worth of back and forth the U.S. can do if they say, well, we don't agree with the decision, which is what they're going to do. And um, so it won't affect us until 2017, probably. Okay. Okay. So then finally, uh, let's talk about the economics of projects here. Um, Our analysts say that we're going to see an average price increase of about 14% from uh, Chinese module suppliers. That will surely impact the economics of projects. Uh, We're already seeing domestic companies uh, enter into long-term supply agreements with non-Chinese manufacturers. That's sure to continue. And when it comes to large commercial, industrial, or utility-scale projects, we could see some projects actually not get developed at all, depending on the economics. Are you hearing anything? So, I mean, so let's just put this in context. Um, if you assume that solar panels from China right now are around 70 cents a watt, 14% would be something on the order of 8 to 9 cents a watt of increase. So it's not, you know, 80 cents a watt of increase. It's 8 to 9 cents a watt of increase. Um, I, you know, my sense is, is that what's going to happen is, is that uh, there will be some projects that fall by the wayside, but that's mostly because the developers are too dumb to figure it out. Um, what will mostly happen is they'll just shift to first solar. So mm-hmm. this is going to be a huge boon for first solar. And I think if first solar is smart, they're going to price their product at a, at, a, at a point where the developers can still make money. Now, they still have to, they're going to want a pound of flesh from the developers, and the developers are going to have to give them part of their profit margin that they thought they were going to make to first solar to get the deal done. So I don't think we're going to lose those projects, but I think there's a very uncomfortable negotiation that's happening. And what's really true is that Solar World will not benefit from this at all. And all of the people in Oregon are going to lose their job anyway. And this whole thing will be for naught, which is what pisses me off. I'm a huge believer in U.S. manufacturing, but to suggest that this process has helped U.S. manufacturing in any way is ridiculous. Certainly a messy, nasty process. All right, well, let's uh, wrap up the show, tell our listeners something they don't know, hopefully bring some positive news. Catherine, we'll start with you. Yeah, so since we're talking about the solar industry, I wanted to give a shout out to someone who's been working a long time in the solar industry, Carrie Cullen-Hitt, 
who was head of the Solar Alliance and then was the only woman in SIA's, uh, you know, on SIA's executive team, was senior vice president uh, for state policy, has worked, you know, tireless hours on state uh, solar efforts. And she's moved on. She's going to go work for a large renewable energy developer, but um, we will miss her being part of SIA and part of the state world in the solar industry. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Carrie Hitt. I second that. She's done great work. Jigger, you got any good stories this week? Well, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the microinverter market. So there basically has been a couple of really big financings that got done in the microinverter market this week. And, um, you know, I think Enphase has done an extraordinary job of, of, of keeping their leadership position there. But there's a lot of people who've said that DC optimizers versus just AC microinverters are a better way of going. And a couple of big firms have gotten financing around that. And, and I just think that um, it's interesting to me that this battle around central inverters versus microinverters, but then also microinverters versus DC optimizers, frankly, hasn't seen its, you know, sort of full conversation occurring um, in the solar industry. But I think with all this extra money, you are going to see a bigger push there. And I think that's a good thing because I think particularly for smaller solar projects, um, these microinverters and DC optimizers are probably going to give the banking community more comfort around bringing big money to the table. So why hasn't it been more sophisticated? I mean, we've seen so many of these technologies deployed now. Well, I think there's a mistaken notion by the marketplace that the solar industry is progressive and open to new technology. And I think the fact of the matter is it isn't. I mean, when you think about crystalline solar still dominates solar um, um, since 1974, actually. When you think about the inverter technologies that we're using, it's generally the central station inverter technologies that Xantrax and Sakon and others have pioneered. String inverters had a little bit of success really in Germany, but, but other than that, you know, we, we, really people haven't gone that way. So I think people really sort of believe that the solar industry is this industry that accepts modern innovations on a regular basis, and nothing could be farther from the truth. We're as conservative as they come. All right, I've got a little factoid from First Fuel that I want to mention. First Fuel is obviously this software provider that we've talked about numerous times before. They have a software as a service that remotely monitors building energy consumption. They actually wrote an interesting piece for us the other day highlighting the importance of operational improvements as opposed to technology improvements in buildings. And um, there was this stat they released a while back, it was like a year and a half ago, that showed just over half of the efficiency opportunities in the buildings that they were monitoring were uh, behavioral changes, not equipment retrofits, things like you know sequencing equipment properly. And they've just recently identified this other interesting trend uh, that some older buildings that they're monitoring are actually outperforming new lead certified ones. And in one case, they compared a building from 1971 to a brand new lead building and they found far more savings opportunities in the lead building that had new high-tech equipment, a solar system, uh, new boilers, etc., new HVAC system, because the equipment managers were actually using, or because the building managers were actually using the equipment wrong. And so this is a finding we've seen before. Like a couple years ago, New York City released its benchmarking data, and there were some buildings from the early and mid-1900s that were outperforming new lead buildings. 
And some of that had to do with the buildings having a tighter envelope, and some of it was operational. And so, you know, historically, LEED has not been rated on energy performance as much as it has been on the materials and construction techniques. It's important to note that when making this comparison. But, you know, that's changing as more people put emphasis on the energy performance over time. And I thought this this statistic was pretty compelling because it just goes to show you how crucial the management side of the energy equation is. And it's often that boring stuff that makes the biggest difference. It's humans. <laughs> Those <laughs> that boring stuff, the operators. It's great. Well, and this is why I think that clean energy really is going to be leading to a job training and job and employment boom. Because I think as people realize that, um, they're going to also realize that skimping on the maintenance staff, et cetera, is actually negative to your bottom line. Yep, absolutely. And it adds this whole nother component to companies providing services and selling technologies into the built environment. Having that level of communication with the building managers over how to properly use the equipment or service their buildings is absolutely crucial. And uh, that really falls on the shoulders of these companies attempting to break into this space. It's certainly a big hurdle, but a potential opportunity. And that marks the end of our show. Thanks a lot for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, eGage Systems, for their support. For links to stories related to the topics we discussed, hit up greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Make sure to bookmark the site and subscribe to the podcast as well. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Energy Gang. And just to let folks know, we will be doing a live show in New York City at WNYC's Green Room on Monday, September 22nd. We will start at 7 p.m. Mark your calendars and visit www.cleanecnyc.org slash next dash event. And boy, that's a mouthful. So rather than repeat it, I will put it up on the podcast page and you can link through for more information and to sign up. We'd love to see you there. Catherine, good show this week. Talk to you later. I guess the next time we will chat with you, you'll be podcasting from the Adirondacks on vacation. No, not yet. I have one more week before oh, I Oh, that's right. Oh, I'm a little ahead of the Stop game. Stop it. That was so cruel. <laughs> so you're timing your vacation with the congressional vacation. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jigger, we know that you are out and about, so enjoy your time in Aspen. Thanks. With Katherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week.